Be ready for everything and anything. Every good player has the ability to slow the game down. It doesn't matter what just happened, it's what you're gonna do next. Donut three! One, two, three, zone! Welcome to the Get Zoned In podcast for coaches looking to improve their skills and knowledge both on and off the field. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, this podcast is for you. We'll be exploring a variety of topics that are relevant and important to baseball and softball coaches, but this advice can be used for all sports and skill levels. Join us as we dive into the world of coaching and learn from some of the best in the business. Whether you're looking to improve your team's performance or just want to make a positive impact on your players, we've got you covered. Let's go and let's play ball. Welcome to the Get Zoned In podcast. I'm Duke Baxter with Steve Nickerak, Inside Zone Sports Academy, and we have another great episode for you today. Last week, we spoke to Brandon Geyer, a mental conditioning coach with the Angels, and he had some great mental gems. He talked about using the word resistance over the word slump. He talked about breathing and the importance of that. He also spoke about visualization and much more. Make sure you go watch that episode. Today, I'm going to interview our very own Steve Nickerak, and we're going to get deep into his passion for the game, coaching style, experiences, and his number one best-selling book. Steve, this is going to be fun today. Thanks, Dukester. It's it's going to be cool to be on the opposite side of things. Usually, Duke and I are, are the ones asking questions. This is a, uh, a creative twist on our podcast today, so I'm, I'm pumped to dive into it. So the first thing we all want to know about is growing up, can you talk about when you started loving baseball? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, probably the same time you did, five, six years old. You know, my brothers and I, we grew up playing tennis ball, baseball on the street and really just competing at everything we did. Uh, My dad was the one that introduced me to the game and kind of drove that passion, Um, you know, and then later on, you know, my Uncle Gary, my grandpa, those guys played such a, such a pivotal role in really developing me as a, as a person and an athlete. But, you know, just like a lot of the guys out there, you know, T-ball, um, I remember playing minor B and Little League, and, you know, it was always the biggest deal for us just because we're, we're a competitive family. Um, but I remember, uh, you know, being seven, eight years old and winning championships and going out for ice cream after. And my family just did such a good job of, of making it seem like, you know, it was so important. And, uh, and it was always fun, and, and we were always the ones that, that wanted to go out and practice. And it was just something that, you know, as athletes, um, and I don't know if you're going to ask me this later, but we played baseball, basketball, and football growing up. Um, baseball just happened to be the one sport that, uh, that we excelled at the most and, and that we love practicing the most. That's awesome. So when did Steve Nickrack actually start realizing, wow, I think I'm pretty good? Was it something that you said to yourself? Was it something that someone else said to you? When was that that aha moment of like, wow, I'm pretty good at this? I think it was probably going into high school. Um, you know, I thought I was a, I thought I was a pretty good player. That was definitely an eye-opening experience for me uh, because I started out on JV as a freshman, and you know, a lot of people. It's funny being on the other side of this now. Is there's so many kids that it's you know varsity or bust. Um, you know, I was excited to play JV baseball, being one of the only freshmen on the team. And a couple weeks into the season, our starting shortstop on varsity became ac- academically ineligible. And, and he, I think he got himself into some trouble at school. So the door opened up and, and my high school coach asked me if I wanted to play short in, in one of our, our, our big rivalry games against East Stroudsburg. And I was so fired up. I wasn't in the lineup hitting, but I was playing defense. And, and our pitcher was 
I think, or we had somebody DHing for me, but I wasn't in the lineup, um, just playing defense. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of upperclassmen on the team, you know, motivate me and give me the confidence that I belong there. Because, of course, I was nervous. I was, to be honest, I was young for my grade, too. I was 14 years old, so I was really two years off the Little League field. And I remember our, our first baseman kind of put his arm around me and, and told me that I belonged. Our third baseman did the same thing. So, you know, I think once I got that first ground ball out of the way and knowing that those upperclassmen believed in me, that's really where uh, I think my confidence started to flourish. And then, you know, like just, just like in anything, when you're playing with confidence, you know, you start to excel a little bit more. Uh, but I think going into, going into high school, my Uncle Gary would, would drive from Westfield, New Jersey to Stroudsburg to pick me up, to bring me all the way back here to Bridgewater, New Jersey to train. Um, this place was was pivotal in in me developing a, as a baseball player because being a multi-sport athlete, a lot of times second baseball ended, you put your football pads on. The second football ended, you picked up your basketball shoes. The second basketball was over, you picked up your gloves. So it really wasn't year-round training. But when I did get an opportunity to train, it was it was a lot of driving back and forth to this place. And uh, obviously, I haven't left since 2004. So it, it, it played a pivotal role not only in my development as a player but also my career. So growing up, who did you try to model your game after? You know, who was your, your baseball all-star that you, man, you, maybe you hit like him, maybe you feel like, maybe you pitch like him. You know, who was that? My favorite player growing up was Paul O'Neill. But I grew up in the Derek Jeter era. I was a Yankee fan. I mean, Derek Jeter was the man. He was, you know, the coolest guy in the world. Um, I had Derek Jeter jerseys. So did my brothers. We loved going to Yankee games. And we just were fortunate to grow up, for, you know, watching baseball between 95 and 2002. And it was just such an awesome time to be a Yankee fan. So we were very spoiled growing up. But I would definitely have to say Derek Jeter. Um, could you share your journey from being a college player at Temple to playing professional baseball? You know, you played for the Patriots, the Jackals, the St. Saint Paul Saints. What were some of the highlights? And then also, what were some of the challenges that you encountered along the way? Yeah, I mean, it was a dream of mine from the time I was a kid to play pro ball. And I remember getting drafted by the White Sox, uh, you know, going out to Chicago. It was, it was U.S. Cellular Field at the time to, to do a pre-draft workout and coming home thinking, you know, I think if I'm going to get drafted, it's going to be from, from this team. So, you know, a couple weeks later, I hear my name called in the draft. Two days after that, I fly out to Arizona for minicamp. And, uh, you know, I went or originally to the Great Falls Voyagers, which is a short season A team. And... Uh, I wasn't in the lineup every day. Um, I was actually playing behind our general manager, Kenny Williams' son. Um, so my, my time was a little spotty when it came to uh, at-bats, but I felt pretty comfortable. Pete Rose Jr. was my manager. Um, he, was, he was awesome, he, you know, keeping me, keeping me motivated and keeping me excited um, for every opportunity I had. And, uh, you know, hit a couple homers. From there, I ended up getting sent down to rookie ball. One of our, one of our third basemen in rookie ball got hurt. Um, you know, played that year, but really struggled. Um, you know, my numbers were, were horrible. I did okay defensively, but it was, it was a battle. And, you know, I think that's the thing you don't realize as a young player and then a college player is once you get to pro ball, I mean, it's really hard to get there and it's even harder to stay. You know, it, it was a challenge. And to me, it was, it was a little bit difficult because it was, it was pretty cutthroat. You know, if, if Duke and I are best friends and we both play the same position and the game's on the line, like, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for you to succeed, but in, this, in the same token, we're competing for the same job. So, you know, it was, it was a little bit of that. You know, a year later, I got released, played with the Somerset Patriots, which is a local uh, independent team, ended up getting traded to the New Jersey Jackals, and then I finished up with the St. Paul Saints in 2015. And I had the most fun 
in professional baseball playing for them, for those three teams, because the kind of win at all costs, you know, team was brought back into it. And not that that was missing with the White Sox. And, it, you know, it might have been me being immature and not really understanding, uh, you know, myself as a professional baseball player yet, because I didn't have a lot of opportunities. But, you know, the fun was brought back into it when, when I started playing independent ball again, because, of course, we want to get re-signed. We want to, you know, get another shot. But, uh, you know, it, it was team first, and, and the guys were playing for one another, and we were trying to win championships. And I think sometimes that's lost in, in minor league systems because you're always so worried about what's next. Am I going to get sent up? Am I going to get demoted? Am I going to get released? And you've got all these thoughts going through your head, um, especially being a 32nd-round draft pick. You know, my leash wasn't the longest, and rightfully so. My, my numbers weren't good. I wasn't good enough. But then getting to play indie ball really made it fun again. And I had three awesome years traveling the country, playing all over the place, and really just meeting some good people and playing with some good guys, playing for some awesome managers that brought the winning back into it. And that's really, it reminded me of college a little bit in that way. Can you talk a little bit about, I remember getting a video, I don't know what year it was, but of you getting hit right in the face by a fastball. I think it was in the, the mid to upper 90s, and it was, I mean, the watching that video was like one of the scariest days I've ever encountered, knowing like, oh my God, like what's gonna happen now? What's gonna happen next? Can you take us through, I have the goosebumps just thinking about it. Can you take us through, you know, you getting hit and what was the, you know, the recovery like and how'd you get back and the coolest part about that afterwards, just say the, you know, how you overcame it and what that was like the day after you, you got back on the ball field. Whenever anybody asks me the coolest story about my professional baseball career, it's always this one. Um, it was my last year playing in the minor leagues. I'm playing with the St. Paul Saints. And again, I just referenced like having a lot of fun and you know winning games. I want to say we broke the single season wins record that year. We were a really, really good team. The guys were just gelling. And um, we were on a road trip in Fargo, North Dakota. And I had just gotten bumped up to the two spot in the lineup. So I was swinging a hot bat. You know, I think I started off the season seventh or eighth. I get bumped into the two hole. I have a really good game at home. We're going out there and my first at bat, we're facing a right-handed pitcher. First at bat, I struck out on three fastballs on the outside corner. And I swung through all of them. And that was frustrating for me as a hitter because that was the pitch I loved to hit the most. That was the pitch I cheated for. And I usually didn't miss that one. So next at bat, I get in there and I'm cheating fastball middle away again. And I get a two-seamer up and in. And it, it hit me like in my cheekbone. I didn't fall to the ground. I just remember hearing like a, an extreme ringing noise. I kind of took my helmet off and slammed it and I like dropped down to like my knees. And next thing you know, we've got our whole training staff out on the field, you know, blood is everywhere. And uh, I ended up getting carted off in an ambulance and we're at some small hospital in Fargo, North Dakota. They're doing vision testing and CAT scans and x-rays. And I ended up getting 15 fractures in my face. So my whole eye socket, my nose, my cheekbone, they were all pretty much cracked. And, and there was a bunch of fractures all over the place. So the original doctor looked at me and said, you know, your baseball career is over. I was kind of bummed. I mean, I had a feeling it was going to be my last season anyway. Um, and the worst part about that was we were four hours from, from St. Paul, our home city. So I had a four-hour car ride home. You know, I had ice on my face, completely swollen. And uh, get home two days later, I have a follow-up visit with the, with the surgeon, for, the facial surgeon for the Minnesota Wild, the hockey team. And I go in to see him. And he's like, yeah, we'll do surgery on Monday and you'll be good to go in two weeks. And I remember hearing that, like, all right, this guy's an NHL doctor. So those guys are built a little bit different. You know, those guys get stitches mid-game and go back out. 
So again, I didn't really know what to think. Um, I didn't know what the surgery was gonna be like. I didn't know what the recovery time was gonna look like, but my manager was awesome. George Thomas, and he, he, he called me and he said, listen, instead of you getting sent home, we're gonna put you on the 30 day inactive list. So we'll still pay you to be here. If you can come back, great. If you can't, we'll give it 30 days and we'll, we'll kind of reevaluate. So I got the surgery, the swelling went down. Again, I got my vision tested a bunch and, uh, and I was okay. I mean, still really swollen. I had a couple plates in my face and uh, end up coming back exactly 30 days later um, from, from the time I got hit. And I think part of it was, you know what, this is my last season anyway, let's, let's go out and leave it all out on the field. And uh, the second part was that surgeon for the, for the hockey team basically told me, listen, if you get hit again, it's gonna break again, but you're fine. Physically, you're fine, you're gonna be okay. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the bullpen shadowing pitchers. I remember my roommate was Pedro Hernandez, which was a, a former big leaguer, and he had the best command. So that was the one guy I had confidence standing in there and just kind of tracking pitches. And in my first game back, we go out to Fargo again, and we're on the bus trip, and my hitting coach comes up to me and asks me, if I want to play tomorrow because the same pitcher's throwing. So me being a 26-year-old with a whole lot of confidence, I said, yeah, let's go. So long story short, first at bat back, I hit a homer off from the dead center. And that was the coolest story I've ever you know, gone through or the coolest story I get to tell. And I'll probably be telling that story forever. But uh, yeah, that, that was the last year I had in pro ball. And now I use that story a lot, especially for the younger kids out there that are afraid to get hit. It was just something mentally that I had to overcome. And to be honest, I think fielding ground balls was probably the scariest because at least in the batter's box, you know, you've got your helmet on. I had the, the extra flap on my earpiece, but fielding ground balls and not knowing, you know, what kind of hop you're going to get, that was the, the sketchiest part for me com coming back. So let's lead from that. Let's lead into this question. So now pro ball's over. You decide to retire. You're finished. What would, Take us through what that's like because there's so many players, whether it's high school or college or pro ball, you know, they consider themselves a baseball player first and then a human being second. And then all of a sudden when they're done with that or, you know, they get cut from a team or they, you know, they decide not to play anymore, all of a sudden it's like, well, now what? And that feeling, you know, a lot of times there's an empty feeling and people don't know, like, who they really are. Their identity is almost gone. So can you talk about what were you feeling like? What did you do after you decided not to play anymore? Well, there was definitely that feeling. You know, and there was a lot of questions on my end, like, do I want to get into college baseball? Do I want to be a college coach? Do I want to get into selling insurance? <laughs> do I want to, you know, get into, get into marketing? I, had, I really had no clue. All I knew is that I loved the game, and I was fortunate enough that Duke gave me an opportunity from really 2012 to first take my internship here in college, and then every offseason I, I would work here. You know, I think I was not over baseball, but I was, I was over the lifestyle. Um, I was over traveling the country, just trying to make ends meet, making eight, 900 bucks a month. You know, I miss the game, I miss the teammates, I miss the dugout, I miss my, my coaches, but I definitely don't miss playing baseball, which I think was good because I had some closure there. I finished, you know, we had, we had a good season, but then I had been here, you know, for five or six years now every off season and I and I knew I loved coaching. I knew I loved working with Duke. I loved being around the game. I loved making an impact, you know, for, for especially players at the young ages that had the same dreams that I had. So, you know, at the end of the day it took a lot of thinking and I remember thinking about getting into a lot of careers, but this is what I wanted to do. And uh, obviously it, it, it all worked out and you know I couldn't be happier and 
really don't consider what we do work. We get to get to help kids and, and, and coach and mentor and, you know, be all the things that we wish we had growing up um, on a much bigger scale just because of the, the knowledge that we have now, you know, and now we get to coach coaches. So it all worked out. I think there was definitely a couple years and, you know, even to this day, you, you know, you see guys going down to spring training and we've got a couple guys that we coach that are in pro ball and of course you miss it, right? You miss going out and taking ground balls on the field and now that we're getting a little bit older, all we do is play golf and coach baseball. So at least we've got something to compete in. But yeah, you've always got those days, but I absolutely do not miss miss the grind of it. So you got your entrepreneurship degree at Temple University. Are there any entrepreneurial skills or mindsets that you find particularly valuable in the sports industry and what you do now, taking what you learned you know, in college and then kind of taking and using those in, in what we do day to day? Yeah, I think growing up, I, I always wanted, one, to play baseball, and two, to own my own business. And uh, I thought entrepreneurship was just going to be a great, great option for me because it was business. So it was finance and economics, um, but then entrepreneurship was more of the business planning and, and managing people and kind of just figuring out on the fly and, and having the opportunity to always be creative and, and run with things. I, I don't think I could ever work a desk job and sit down for a nine to five you know, and then meeting Duke and doing my, my internship here, I was like, man, this place, this place is special. You know, we have the opportunity to, to create new programs and, you know, really get creative with it. But then also having that background of the finance side and, and the business planning side and the managing people. Um, you know, my favorite class in college was my capstone class. And that was your business plan class. And I wrote a business plan on how to run a baseball and softball facility and kind of model, modeled it off of this. You know, and now that I've been here for a while and I have the opportunity to, to work with Duke on a daily basis, you know, really dive into the nitty gritty on, you know, what it takes to run a successful business and, and, and have full-time and part-time employees and offer benefits. And, you know, it takes me back to, to some of that stuff that, uh, that I learned in college. But it's funny because I think in entrepreneurship, like you can take all the classes you want and until you dive headfirst, you, really uh, you really don't understand because I think sometimes we're, we're part-time firefighters in here putting out <laughs> putting out problems and then the other half of the time we're we're on the creative and, and, and business side of it. So not everybody can call themselves a number one best selling author. You know, taking on the title of coach is is something you you know we we talked about and you're like, hey, let just let me do it. Put out put together some thoughts and let me write this book. And I think it's just an amazing book. I think it's I, I think it's awesome. You know, can you Tell everybody like what motivated, what motivated you to write this book and want to write this book, and you know give us some insights on that. Yeah, I think well, I think it was the book, and I think it was Dominate the Diamond. And for any of those, any any of you guys listening, if you know Duke and I, you know I think part of the reason why we work so well together is because he is one of the most creative people in the world. He's a little bit off the walls. He's crazy. He's got a thousand notes in his computer and on his notebook. You know, and I'm a little bit more of the, okay, let's start with one, two, and three, and let's focus on these things before we get to 10, 11, and 12. So really the, the story behind it was we were doing coaches clinics, and we were doing free coaches clinics for all the, the little leagues in the area. And every time they would leave, every spring, Duke and I would look at each other and say, man, like, you know, we feel like we could do more for them. Um, did they grasp everything we wanted them to in that hour and a half crash course into coaching? And the answer was always no. So, you know, we said, Let, let's write a book. And Duke had sent me, like Duke does, a full sheet of notes with a bunch of ideas and kind of game plans. And, and I sat down and kind of mapped out an outline. 
and then he would send me some ideas and I would put it to paper and I want to say we wrote the book in probably a month at most. It was really fast, you know, and the whole thing kind of kind of went quick, but never been an author before. I had always liked writing and I think like with anything, if you plan well and which we did together, um, you know, we put together a, a killer blueprint and, you know, we sat down and really just mapped out everything a coach would need to know entering their first season taking on the title of coach you know we kind of mapped it out like that i think we had nine chapters and you know it's just kind of cool because it's like the nine innings you know intro through through absolutely everything you might need to know um in 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 coaching youth baseball and softball for the first time so that was just really cool and i remember the day we launched it and and being glued to amazon to see if it was going to be a number one bestseller but that was a really really cool kind of bucket list opportunity to to call yourself an author. This episode is brought to you by Smushball, the official training ball of Zone Sports Academy. How many times do you go to a game and there's no batting cages, no nets, and you only have a field to hit into? No problem. Smushballs are excellent because you can use them for hitting, fielding, catching, blocking, throwing, and much more. Smushballs are the perfect practice ball to use indoors or outdoors, in rain or cold conditions, against fences, nets, and even in basements. We love them for all ages and skill levels. Smush balls, the pliable ball that you can count on. Let's get into a little bit of your of your playing day. So being voted uh, by the Atlantic 10 as the hitter you'd least like to face in the conference in 2011, what do you think contributed to your success as a hitter? Are there any specific techniques or approaches, you know, that that you feel set you apart in your training? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't have an approach until my sophomore year of college. I was just like a lot of us, I'm sure you were the same way. We were just kind of athletic and we went up there and competed and battled. You know, so when I got to college, I think one of the coolest things was being a freshman and getting a little bit of an opportunity to play early and experience some success similar to my freshman year in high school, as I referenced earlier, kind of kicked off the, the confidence level um, as, as a college athlete. Uh, I had some great coaches. I had coaches that believed in me, that you know, in, instilled a trust in me, that you know, allowed me to trust myself. Um, I wasn't afraid to fail. Uh, I was really aggressive, um, and I tell my hitters all the time in our lessons. There were times weekends I would see less than ten pitches because I was up there looking to looking to hit early. You know, took advantage of, of pitchers just trying to live on the outer half of the plate. And really, my approach came down to I'm going to hammer anything on the outer half. That means I'm going to strike out sometimes in, I'll get beat in, I'll, I'll get frozen, frozen on curveballs in, but if you miss out over the plate with anything, I'm going to get it. And it worked, and it was the, the perfect approach for me. And, uh, you know, I try to help hitters with that now because everybody's different. Everybody has to think different things and feel different things. But for me, it was definitely the simplifying the approach, looking in a certain zone, and just trusting it. And uh, again, it was the first time I actually got to focus on being a baseball player 12 months out of the year. Um, just like you, being a multi-sport athlete growing up, my bat really didn't get touched much the second football started until basketball ended. So, you know, you really got to, you get to dive into strength training and mobility and flexibility and explosiveness, as well as really hammering down technique-wise your swing. And uh, yeah, I was just very fortunate that I, I had seen a little bit of success early on and then that kind of propelled me going forward. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, let's let's dig into your lesson now. You're giving a kid a lesson and you're you're training them and it just seems like the 
The kid's afraid. He's afraid to fail. He's afraid to, you know, we see this all the time. Kids go up and next, you know, they're watching him in the cage and they're mashing in the cage. And then the parent's like, man, Johnny gets in the, the batter's box in the game. And he just doesn't swing. You know, he strikes out and he's just not even swinging at all. And really like afraid to mess up. What are some things that, that you did when you played? I don't know if maybe when you played or what do you do now as you coach, but how do you help kids that are like afraid to mess up? Uh, you know, that's, it's like that word always is tossed out there, the fear of failure. Yeah. Like, how do you help your kids when they're, you know, overcoming some of those things and just play? Well, that's a great question. And I think most kids, if not all kids, go through this. Um, I went through it. You know, you went through it. We've, we've all been afraid of failing. And it's a game of failure. So, you know, I think trying to not lose perspective on, on where you're at. Right? If you're talking to, let's say, Duke's son, who's 12 years old, and, and he's afraid when he get, gets up to the plate, like almost like taking a step back and talking to that kid and saying, Tyler, five years from now, you're never going to remember your 12-year batting average. Right now, it seems like it's the biggest deal in the world. Go up there and let it fly. You're never going to remember how many strikeouts you had or how many hits you had or how many wins your team had. Like, step back, have fun, and enjoy it. You know, and I think now with, with social media, with players committing at an early age, there's a lot of uncertainty. And kids are just, they feel like they have to be perfect. Sometimes it starts at home. Sometimes they're afraid to get in the car on the way home. You know, but I failed a ton. All from, you know, from Little League, through college, through pro ball. And I think I'm able to reference my own playing career and look back and say, like, what the heck was I so nervous about? Like, what was I so afraid of? You know, and then having a better perspective now on getting to talk to my college coaches. And I've used this example a few times, but Ryan Wheeler from St. Joe's was on our podcast a couple weeks back, and he said he actually enjoys watching a kid fail just to see, you know, how they respond and how they react. What kind of a teammate are they? You know, so anytime I'm in a lesson and a kid's growing through a slump, you know, one thing I say is it's not going to be your last slump. Right, because slumps are gonna are gonna happen way too often, um, especially in this game that is a game of failure. So, not losing perspective on where you're at, having fun, enjoying it, being super super aggressive. I I'd rather see a kid go up there and and take three healthy swings and strike out, than take a, a half speed swing because they're afraid to miss and now they're out. So you know, giving yourself three healthy healthy chances, eventually eventually you're gonna not be playing baseball anymore. Um, so the last thing you want to do is look back with any regrets on, on anything, right? Why was I nervous? Why was I afraid? Why was I taking that first pitch fastball? You know, why didn't I want the ball hit to me? Those are all feelings that we have, and, and I've gone through it at the, at the highest of levels. So, and also, you know, coaching the parents up on, listen, your kid is going to fail. He is going to strike out. They are going to give up the game-winning homer. That's part of it, and, and you can look back and you can learn from it, and, and hopefully, you know, grab the bull by the horns and go into the next game with, with a little bit more confidence and, and fearlessness. That's so good. That's awesome. With your experience as a head travel baseball coach, what do you consider to be some of the most crucial aspects of coaching young players? And how do you balance skill development and mental preparation? Almost like, how do you combine the two of those? Because I feel like that's just a, you know, when you're coaching, the, it's not just, you're not just coaching skills or you know, you have that kid that's, you know, that, that's 0 for 3 or he feels like he's slumping. It's like the mental side of it is a whole other animal. So as a coach, how do you balance those two? Well, there's definitely got to be a balance, and you've, got, and you've got to work on both. We talk about breathing. We talk about um, visualization. We talk about 
kind of just slowing the game down and putting the, putting those the, the blindfold on or having tunnel vision um, on really just playing inning to inning and pitch to pitch. I think so often kids get so caught up in everything else. They get caught up in the accolades. They get caught up in you know, so-and-so from another school committing before you. And I, I, I reference that just because I, I have the guys that are 17 years old now and they all want to get committed to college. They all want to play at the next level. But sometimes, you know, if you take a step back and focus on right now and you try to win every single pitch, you know, everything else kind of takes care of itself. But if you're the kind of player that, you know, you're always worried about what's next, you're never going to dominate where you're at. And that was a piece of advice that I had growing up. Um, and it was really just focus on where you're at. Be the best version of yourself right here in this moment. You know, and again, you look back at the end of the year and the numbers take care of themselves. But if you're that guy that's always worried about next level, you know, am I going to get cut? What's the batting order going to look like tomorrow? You're worried about all that stuff. And I was at times. Um, you get so caught up and you're not even concentrated on the pitcher throwing you a first pitch fastball and you lose sight of, of all of it. You know that. And I wanted to talk about this story today. Um, it was a story my buddy told me the other day, which was just so good. And that's really just like lose, losing perspective on, on the big picture, right? Because all of us coaches were developing young men and women to, to grow up and, and be successful adults. The top 0.001% are going to play professional baseball, right? And even smaller than that are going to be the percent that actually make it to the big leagues. Um, there's 1,500 people drafted every year. That's not including international players. And there's 750 major leaguers. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to get drafted. I talk about getting released and not making it. And that is for most of us, right? We get a chance to play pro ball and we, and we never make it. So a buddy of mine, we, we play golf. He's from Puerto Rico. And uh, I, I was talking to him a little bit about our scholarship the other day. And he was like almost in tears talking about it. And he, he wants to donate to it. And he was like, man, what you guys do is just amazing. Not just us, but all coaches. He goes, you know, I had a couple, a couple coaches growing up in Puerto Rico that really helped mold me into a baseball player. And if I wasn't a baseball player, I would be parking cars at the hotel in San Juan. And he started to tear up telling me the story. And he was dead serious. He goes, because baseball gave me the opportunity to go to Lehigh and get an en engineering degree. And now he's a successful business businessman who's already sold one company and he created another one. This guy is super successful. And... He went back to baseball, and he said, if I didn't have an opportunity to play this game, I'd be, I'd be parking cars. And he, literally, he teared up. And uh, I think too often guys lose sight of, you know, making it to the big leagues or being the best baseball player, when in reality this game is going to offer you so many opportunities to meet new people and see new places and really just open up different avenues for you career-wise and, you know, exploring new things. And I just thought that was so cool. So when you talk about like kids struggling with the mental side and the physical side, I think sometimes you got to take a step back and, uh, you know, not forget where you're at and not forget the reason, the real reason why you started playing this game in the, in, in the beginning. And uh, parents especially get caught up in it. Then the kids get caught up in it and, and it makes the game not fun right? You, you, you want to go out there, you want to enjoy it, you want to have fun. So I've been able to take a, a little bit of a step back and kind of look at the big picture. And I think if more people do that, I don't know, that, that, that story he told me was just pretty inspiring, um, especially hearing it from a guy like him who's, who's very successful. And it all went back to the importance of playing baseball and being an athlete. And he wasn't even a good college player, but he talked about kind of just being that team guy and being that leader and kind of the gel on his, on his team when he was there. And I just thought that was pretty cool. That is that that is awesome. Everybody always wants to 
go to the next level so fast instead of really appreciating where they are and dominating that. And then when the time comes, moving up to the next level and being ready opposed to not being ready, going to another level and then just failing at it because it was too quick. But can you talk a little bit about the way that you handle the games, like watching you at a game, how you're so even keeled throughout the game, throughout the process. And some people take that as a sign of like, well, does he want to win? He's so relaxed. And and I'll be the first to say, hey, whether we're playing uh, fungo bucket golf or we're playing, you know, throw, trying to throw the ball into a target, you're one of the most competitive people I've ever seen. So can you explain how, yes, you can be super competitive and want to win, but also keep everything in perspective of doing everything still, you know, the way that you do it? Well, I think I might be able to hide it well at times because there's times I'm, I'm boiling, just like all you coaches out there listening. We, we, get, we get pissed. We want to yell at the umpire. We want to yell at our players. I think we, we try to teach this to all of our coaches, but really practice times for us and the game time is for the kids. And we've all played with pressure. We've all played with those coaches that uh, kind of make you walk on eggshells a little bit and you're, and you're afraid to fail. So, you know, what I try to do is, you know, pump these kids up with, with confidence to believe in themselves and to go out there and have fun and play hard. You know, our only team rule is, is to be on time and play the game the right way. That's it. We don't talk about anything else. Um, you know, so, so really when, when you go to the game, like I understand you're going to make errors. I understand you're going to strike out. But as long as you do it in an aggressive way and you're playing the game hard and you're sprinting on and off the field, really it, it just comes down to effort. And these guys, I've, I'm fortunate enough to coach really the same team from, from 11U through 17U. So, you know, now it's just go out and play, man. Go have fun. Let, let's win a baseball game. Let's, you know, at the younger ages, it's definitely more hands-on. It's more me moving kids around, yelling out certain situations, making sure that they understand what we need to do on the next play. At, the, at this point, these guys know how to play, and it's, it's in a showcase setting, so they don't need to hear me from the dugout yelling out what they need to do. They know, they, need, they know what they need to do, and more times than not, it's a conversation when they come in. And for instance, uh, you know, our third baseman and our shortstop both made an error the other day, and uh, I was mad in the dugout because they hadn't taken their ground balls in between innings seriously. And, you know, they're out there and they're having fun. They're throwing it on the run. They're doing the Derek Jeter play. And then you get two, two routine plays and both balls were thrown away because it was the first time they actually had to throw a ball full speed to first base. So uh, that was an opportunity where I really wanted to yell out on the field, but I didn't. I kept my mouth shut. And when they came in the dugout, I was pretty stern with them. And I made, made, made eye contact with them and I said, guys, you, you have to take your warm-up seriously. And, and they could tell I was pissed. Um, but that was it. And then that was the end of the conversation. And the rest of the game, they went out there and they took their warm-up seriously. So I think being able to have the trust of the players that when they come in, they're going to look you in the eyes, they're going to, you know, they're going to listen and, and trust you rather than being that guy that's screaming from the dugout and is so loud all game. Like, and we see it all the time, you know, coaches from other teams, um, parents from other teams, just take a step back, let the kids play. If there's a coaching moment, do it in the dugout, um, especially because some kids – can't handle being called out in front of a lot of people. Some guys can really handle the one-on-one. Some guys can hear it a little bit. But if there's going to be time time to coach guys up and get on them and, and be hard, it's in practice. I think game time's for them. I think that's awesome because I feel like handling it the way you handled it is being a professional at what you do as a coach. Some people see that as, how come he's not fixing it? How come he's not yelling at him? How come he's not... 
you don't have to be a yeller to be a good coach. You know, you, you don't have to reprimand in front of everybody so everybody knows Johnny made a mistake at shortstop. You wait till it's over. You let him come in. And whether you're pissed or not pissed, you, you have that conversation and you move on. And I think so many people are just, well, so-and-so is not even coaching. He's not developing. He's not helping. Why? Because he's not yelling. Not everybody has to yell to get their point across. So what are your thoughts on the future of baseball and softball training and development? Are there emerging trends or innovative techniques that you find particularly exciting or promising as we're, you know, moving on? There's so much technology out there and so many things going on. You know, what are some things that, that, that you're excited about or not excited about when it comes to development of players? I mean, I, I think a lot of it is awesome. You know, you're watching professional games and you can see spin rates and exit velocities and launch angles. Um, it definitely makes the game a little bit more interactive to where you know exactly what's going on and who's doing what. You know, the technology is just insane. The way you're able to measure balls coming out of a pitcher's hand and measure body movements using things like the K-Vest and, you know, having a hit track system right here. So I definitely think there's a need for it. Because if you don't offer that, you know, you're almost doing, you know, doing the kids a disservice by them being able to do it somewhere else. Um, so having the, the capability of using technology helps. It makes our job a little bit easier. But I am a little bit old school in that. I think there's, there's certain ways that that can get a little bit too much. And I think kids can get clouded with too much information. And it can be overwhelming. I mean, I remember looking at, at Blast for the first time and being so just mind blown by the technology and it's awesome. This isn't a knock on blast at all. I think it's, it's incredible what, what they can do and they can offer just by putting a sensor on your bat. But I can also put myself in the shoes of a 13 year old at home looking at the 25 different scores or grading systems and getting overwhelmed and wondering why all of my numbers aren't green and a couple are red and a couple are yellow. So I think you need both. I think you need a coach that's able to teach you um, through experience and through failures and talk a lot about the mental side. And you need the, the, the capabilities of, of having a hit tracks and a rap soto and you know, having the technology side as well. So you can really dive deep into maybe what, what, what's the reason behind why this player is struggling? Or what's the reason that you know, your slider is getting hammered even though it might look good and then you throw it on rap soto and realize that it's not really that good. Um, it's more of a, a cut fastball than a slider. So, you know, there, there's so many tools and gadgets out there. Uh, you know, I think it's finding things that you're well rehearsed in and, and you do your homework as a coach and, you know, you understand through and through before trying to teach it to a player, but then also having the ability to go in there and flip balls and do the old eye test and, you know, kind of dive, dive deep into the mental side as well. I think, you know, plus, you know, kids sometimes just get so caught up in the numbers and they forget to, well, are you getting outs? You know, can you talk a little about just the other day how, you know, you had a pitcher that the one time was just trying to crank up the radar gun and was staring at his numbers and almost like the numbers themselves that he was trying to shoot for opposed to, okay, not knowing your numbers and throwing almost twice as good. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is a real thing too. We, we have a pitcher that is a, a very good left-handed arm. And just like every other 17-year-old in the country, they're worried about their velocity. And they're trying to throw really hard and they think they have to get to a certain number to get to a certain level college. And we had a college coach there watching him. And I asked the coach after the game, you know, you know, we started the conversation by, you know, what did you think of him? And he's like, I love him. 
I love this competitiveness. I love this tempo. I love this intent. I love this intensity out there. So you guys are in a showcase, and this guy's you know, giving a fist pump to everybody coming off the field. He's sprinting off the field. He's fired up, um, which you don't see a lot. So then I said, you know, any idea where his velo was? And the coach said, I don't care. You know, this was a guy that had good stuff. He had good life on his fastball. You know, he threw his breaking ball for strikes. And, you know, the competitiveness is what took him over the edge for me. I don't care if he's throwing 85 or 87 right now. The, you know, the strength program and the velocity program and the arm care. When, when we get him on campus, you know, we can teach a little bit of velocity and we can get him. He goes, but we can't teach that, that competitiveness and that fire that he pitched with today. So, you know, I, I think you, you have to have both. Don't get me wrong. That's not saying, you know, if you've got a player that's throwing 74 miles an hour, he's, he's going to be able to go to Alabama, right? There's, there's definitely some gray area there. But if you've got a guy that's got good stuff and he's able to go out there and compete and really pitch, you know, sometimes uh, that's a lost art in, in, the, in the age where every single kid is just trying to, you know, do a running start and throw the ball 105 miles an hour. Um, there's a lot of guys in college baseball right now that can throw 90, but they're getting lit up because it's flat and it's straight and they don't have an off-speed pitch. So there's definitely a need for those guys that can go in there and just flat out compete and throw a 3-1 slider for a strike. Um, you know, and get get the opposing team off balance. So I just thought that was interesting. And when I told him after the game, the kid's first question to me, well, any idea what my velo was at? <laughs> and I said, he doesn't care. And he, he really doesn't care. Um, he didn't even look at the radar gun once. And it was probably a, a, a better thing that the scoreboard velocity um, was, was off that game because those kids get so caught up in it. It's like they throw the pitch before he even gets to home plate. They're turning around. like they, They've got whiplash to see how hard they threw it. Um, but yeah, that was interesting. So let's finish. Let, let, let's leave everyone with this. What is something that you'd like to leave the audience with that people don't know about Steve Nickerack? That's a good question. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty much an op- open book. I'm pretty active on, on social media. Um, I don't know if there's anything I, something about me that you guys don't know. Um, but I think the thing that I would leave these coaches with is to really enjoy the time that you have coaching. You know, we all have an opportunity to learn every single day. And I'm just as guilty of it as anybody. When I first got into coaching, I wanted to help so much that I found myself overcoaching and overcomplicating things. You know, so myself and Duke included and our, our entire staff, we try to grow as coaches. And I think each and every one of you out there can grow as coaches. Um, none of us have it all figured out. You know, I'm learning on a daily basis. I, I had a lesson last week that, you know, I was a little bit stumped on because we had been working for three, three years together. And I came right in and showed Duke the video, and I said, what, what do you think about this? You know, so for any of you guys out there that claim to have it all figured out, you definitely don't. Um, so be open. Be coachable. Coaches, be coachable. That's, that's one, of our, one of our chapters and one of our things that we talk about a lot. But yes, be, be an open book. Enjoy what you do because you're, you're not going to be able to call yourself coach forever. So I think I'll, I'll leave it with that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Coach Steve... As always, that was amazing. I think the, the listeners really got a lot out of that as what, is, what it means to be a professional athlete, a professional coach, a coach, a, a motivator. I mean, all those things. And like you always say, you're more than just a, a coach. You're a counselor. You're a, a mental coach. You're, you're all these things all wrapped in one. So when you take on the title of coach, it's no easy task. So thanks so much, Coach Steve. That was amazing. Make sure you watch the Get Zoned In podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.